I want to speak to you about becoming believable believers. Becoming believable believers. Verse number 12, 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in spirit, in purity. I recently saw what I believe was a pitiful sight. I didn't ask for it. I wish I hadn't seen it. But I was uh, merely scrolling through Facebook when one of those pop-up videos came on showing a preacher. Uh, the only way I know to describe it was putting on a, putting on a show. And that sad sight reminded me that some people will do almost anything to get attention, and that fellow was, as they say, down south, strutting his stuff now don't get me wrong because i love red hot emotional preaching but there are some things that go beyond the pale of what is appropriate pulpit decorum i mean it's just out of bounds just uh just not fit uh, for the pulpit and that's exactly what was taking place there I know when I say that, I'm skating on thin ice because it's easy to wrongly accuse someone when it comes to this matter of motives. We can't see their heart, but there are some things that are so far over the top that their intent becomes obvious. It's just obvious that it was a matter of putting on a show and trying to impress people. On another occasion, this same week, I listened to a man singing, and I, I, I was greatly impressed by his ability. I mean, it was absolutely uh, amazing, but there was something about him that was even more impressive than his singing ability, and that's the fact that as you watch this fellow sing and listen to him and the manner in which he sung the song, and I was deeply impressed by the fact that he came across as being so very believable. And in other words, when it was over, I was truly convinced in my heart that he believed that he, in what he was saying, what he was singing. It just was believable. Now I realize we can't always judge a book by its cover and, um, we can't judge people based on outward appearance, but there are many deceivers in this world, and some people are really good actors, pretending that, you know, they are 100% sincere when they're not. I know a preacher whose name I won't mention, uh, a very popular preacher from years ago, and uh, this fellow was all of the time, it seemed like he was crying, but after I met him and spent a considerable amount of time with him and talking to him, I realized that he wasn't crying, he was just whiny. That's really, I, I, I'm being serious. The man was a good preacher, a great author, and so on and so forth. 
but he was just whiny in, in everything he did. And uh, so it's easy. It's easy sometimes for us to misjudge people. And uh, we don't always know all of the facts. But most of the time, we can tell when a person is really being sincere. Uh, and on the other hand, we see times that it's pretty obvious that the person's main concern is for self-gratification instead of the glory of God or the good of other people. And uh, it, it becomes obvious that they, their desire is to win applause and awards. But let me tell you, none of that impresses God. Now, I, I, I take the time to mention all of this for what I think is a very important reason. Because whether we're preaching, whether we're singing, whether we're praying or anything else that we do, it's crucial that we believers be believable. If we're not believable, even though our message might be true, it's not going to find lodging in the hearts of people. So of all people, Christians ought to be credible because the most glorious truths in all of the world become repulsive to people whenever they become convinced that we're just putting on a show, we're trying to draw attention to ourselves, we're trying to impress people. That's true in our walk. It's true in our ways in which we live, in the work that we're involved in, and in our worship and our words. So that, that covers all of the different areas of life. So the challenge tonight is for God to help me and you and all of us that we become believable believers. And that's what, that's what Paul is getting at here in our text because he is urging young Timothy, uh, to, to be an example of the believers and is showing his concern. Uh, in regards to the importance of being an example. And Paul speaks of that in regards to himself and in regards to others. When you read his letters, you can see that he was very much aware of the fact that that great harm comes from our failure to be believable. The power of a godly example is far beyond what our mind can imagine. And we need to remember that we are the only Bible that some people will ever read. Every one of us lives under the watchful eye of those that we come in contact with. And uh, by the way, whether we like it or not, the Bible tells us that we are to be blameless. When we fail at that, other people put that hypocrite label on us whether it's deserving or not that's the conclusion they come to and our effort is wasted dr robert spear who was a missionary for 30 years made a statement that i jotted down in my bible uh, probably 40 50 years ago and he said, after 30 years of leadership and missionary work, it's my conviction and conclusion that the greatest missionary problem is the failure of Christian people to live up to their profession. Think about that. Uh, the greatest failure 
failing to live up to our profession. Another missionary by the name of Johnson made a statement. He said, the chief obstacle to the spread of Christianity, it's not Hinduism nor Buddhism, but the rotten behavior of people who call themselves Christians. Another said that more evil is done to the cause of Christianity by its adherents than its opponents, for the world often contrasts a Christian's profession with his practice. Think about that for a little while, and think about how many people have failed to become Christians as a result of them being repulsed by our own rotten behavior, and we ought to do better than that. We need to live in the awareness of the fact that our example can be harmful or it can be helpful. And we could just spend hours talking about, uh, uh, about this matter, but there is this wide, this wide gap, this chasm between our claims and our conduct that we need to close. And I want you to notice the things that Paul mentions here. These are areas of concern that he has regarding the ministry and our need to be an example in these areas. Now, when I say that, in doing this, Paul could have approached this subject from several different ways. For example, he could have said, you ought to be an example of the believer by manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. And he could have listed all nine of those graces. That would, in my mind, be a wonderful way of, of expressing how we are to be an example. He could have done that, right? Or Paul could have summed it up by saying that we ought to be an example in regards to those three spiritual gifts of faith, hope, and love. Those abiding spiritual gifts. That would have been a good way to approach it. Another good way might have been to use Peter's list there in Second Peter chapter 1. And I've preached an entire series from each one of those things that he mentions there. And he says, and if you do these things, you will never fall. So it, there's a lot of different ways that we could talk about how to be an example. But looking here, we see the mention of six things Six things by which we show ourselves to be an example of the believers. Now, notice exactly what he says, and it's important that you get this. He says, an example of the believers. He did not say an example to the believers. There's a difference. There's a difference. Had he said, be thou an example to the believers, that would speak of being an example to the church. Well, surely we ought to be an example to the church, but there's much more to it than that. And when he says be an example of the believers, he's speaking about being an example before the whole world, before everybody. Now, I mention that because there are some folks that are concerned about their image in the church, but not so concerned when it comes to their image in the world. In other words, as long as they are well thought of by their fellow church members, they, 
they're content. They're satisfied. Everything's all right because I've got a good reputation in the church. Everybody likes me and speaks well of me. But then they make no mention of what their neighbor might think or their co-workers or other people. And it's important that that we realize we're to be an example not just to those within our church congregation, but an example to everybody that we come in contact with. And the reason that's important is because we are to be witnesses. Acts 1.8. Witnesses where? Well, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so wherever we go, we are to be a witness. And we're to be salt. We're to be light in this world. And so that's why it's important that we be an example of the believers. So let's just look at these, look at these uh, six words that he uses here to describe how to be an example. First of all, he says in word. That speaks about our speech. And, and, and I believe he starts here for a good reason. I, I can't tell you I know exactly what it is, but I do know this, that it was the Spirit of God leading Paul to write these things. And, and, and I'm convinced that God put each and everything in the order that he wanted it to be. So he starts out with this list by talking about our speech. And I think we'd all agree until we get our tongue under control, everything else is going to be out of control. That's why James said if we're able to bridle our tongue the same as a perfect, that is a well-developed, mature person. And able to control, what did he say? The whole body. In other words, you get the tongue under control and you can control everything else. And so we're to be blameless, that is of good behavior, not a brawler, Paul said to Timothy back in chapter number one, not a brawler. It's real easy for, for preachers to get involved in bickering and arguing about everything under the sun to where, you know, the old term, the fighting fundamentalist. Boy, and I'll tell you that it was a real thing because that's about the time I started preaching where, boy, we were proud to be a rugged, two-fisted fundamentalist fighting everything under the sun. I heard one popular preacher, I was there when he said it, and boy, he was coming down on the great need for us to get involved and to fight against sin. And I mean, he, 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 he talked about the movies and he talked about this and that, and he talked Told the preachers, he said, whenever you've attacked everything else, he said, if you can't, if you can't think of anything else, preach against Hershey bars. Tell the parents them, them Hershey bars are rotting your kids' teeth out. And, but, but you, you gotta speak up. You gotta get involved. You gotta become controversial. You, you know, at the, I, back at that stage in my life, I, I, I don't know, but there's a good chance I might have said amen to that. But it didn't take me long after that to realize one of the most stupid things I ever heard in my life. For a well-known preacher or any preacher to make a comment like that. And that's what Paul's warning Timothy. Don't be a brawler. Don't, don't get in unnecessary fights. And he warns him about that over and over again. Don't get sidetracked in all of these silly arguments that's going on. And so... Words are powerful. They hurt or they heal. And again and again and again, God gives us these warnings about the use of the tongue. And over and over, He reminds us that we are accountable 
accountable for the words that we speak. So we're to be an example of the believer in regards to, to our words, our tongue, our speech. And after all of these years of preaching, I can tell you from experience that a great many of our church problems all go back to the misuse of the tongue. It might be in just constant complaining and harping and belly aching about things, and that becomes like a cancer in a church. And after a while, it's contagious. I mean, it goes from one to the other. Uh, it might have to do with not just complaining about life in general, but criticizing. Or some people just feel like, you know, that it's their God-given duty to criticize everything else that other people do. It might be an out right slandering of people it happens it might be in gossip because in gossip you see that's the one we think we can get by with because you can be the biggest gossip in the church and tear a church apart and not be lying about what you're saying you're just talking about stuff that you shouldn't be talking about what you say is true but you shouldn't be telling anybody else about it And let me tell you, that goes on all of the time in churches, and it does tremendous harm. And we need to remember, if we're going to be an example of the believer, what Solomon said, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. That's how important it is, because the words fitly spoken, those that are spoken at the right time in the right way, he says they are something beautiful. They'll accomplish great things. And no doubt as you stop and think, and even as you look around, you can think of different people, and it seems like that they've just... They've just always got the right thing to say at the right time that that is a great encouragement to you. Isn't that wonderful? But it is a horrible, terrible thing when we misuse the tongue and bring about dissension in the church. Be thou an example of the believer in word. Next, he says in conversation. Now, a lot of times we use the word conversation, the English word, in reference to what we're talking about, a conversation. But that is not the meaning of this word. This word has to do with our behavior uh, or our deportment, as we might say. It has to do with our walk or our conduct. So we're to be an example believer not only in the words that we speak, but in the way that we walk, the manner in which we live And as I mentioned earlier, the reason for that is explained by the fact that we're to be salt and we're to be light. We're to be examples of godliness. And what did he say? He said, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine. He didn't say make it shine like that first guy I talked about tonight. And say make your light shine. He said, let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So that's our responsibility. And so there must, for that to happen, there has to be a consistency in our, in our, with our claims and our, and our conduct itself. What we claim, the creed that we believe and the thing that we claim as a Christian has got to be consistent with the manner in which we live. Somebody said, a minister's life is the life of his ministry. A minister's life is the life of his ministry. Well, that's well said. But listen, that's not just true of preachers. 
That same thing is true of all of us as Christian people because what God demands for the pastor, He desires for everyone. He's simply saying this is the standard. And how many times, you know, we look at the qualifications for a deacon or the qualifications for a pastor and we look at that and think to ourselves, well, you know, that's, that's for them, but since I'm not one of them, I don't have to, I don't have to pay attention to that standard. You miss the point. The point is that they are to be examples in these areas, and this is the standard that they must live by. But what God's demanding for them, God's desiring for for everyone. That, that's why Paul reminded, I wish I had time to read all of these verses, but Paul oftentimes reminded others, and especially he reminded Timothy about the fact that he was to follow his example. In other words, it's as though Paul is saying, as I follow the Lord, you follow me, because I know I'm going to lead you in the right direction. So he reminds him of that. He, he does the same thing in First Thessalonians in chapter 1 and verse number 5. In chapter 2, verse 10, he, he speaks about the fact that uh, he has set a good example before them. The wonderful thing about that statement is the church at Thessalonica it was the model church. It was the model church of that day. And they were, they became the model church. Why? Because they had a good example to follow in the person of Paul and they followed his example. So God help us in our behavior that we each and every one determine that we're going to be blameless, that we're going to be a good example before others. Many years ago, there were books written about this and it became famous by a certain preacher that I won't mention, but he had preached a sermon and then wrote a book about what was called lifestyle evangelism. Now, lifestyle evangelism, that's a great phrase. I don't have any problem with that. We need to think about our lifestyle as being evangelistic. That's well and good. But let me tell you, it takes more than lifestyle evangelism. There has to be not only the presentation of a Christian example, there has to be the proclamation of the Word of God itself. But the the point I'm trying to make is that so many people, whenever it comes to their preaching, would would get up and preach lifestyle evangelism. But when they come to their living, it it was just like the world, and 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 it's inconsistent. And the result of that was what? Well, and the result of that is uh, like when you go out and knock on the door and invite somebody to church, and they say, well. We don't go to church. We don't want anything to do. Just too many hypocrites in the church. Now, usually, you know, they have no idea what they're really talking about. They accuse good, godly people of being hypocrites when there's no reason for that. But the fact of the matter is there are too many hypocrites in the church. And the fact of the matter is there are too many times that many of us are being hypocritical. We're not necessarily, you know, a hypocrite, but we're being hypocritical in regards to those inconsistencies in our life. So whether it's in our word that is our speech or whether it's in our walk and our conduct, we're to be examples. Now, if Paul had just stopped there, that would have been a mouthful. And believe me, on each one of these, as Brother Kenneth could tell you, it'd be really easy to have an entire sermon on each one of these six things that we're talking about tonight. So Paul could have just stopped there. 
said, keep your mouth shut, your life straight, be a good example. But he doesn't stop there for good reason. Notice next he said, in charity. We all know that that Greek word charity is the same word translated love. It means love. Well, need I say more than that? Be, be thou an example, what? In love. I don't need to say any more about that because of, as you know, of all things, this is the greatest because without it we are nothing. We're as a tinkling brass and, and, a, and a tinkling cymbal and just, we're, we're an absolute nothing. And you remember what Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples and that you have love one to another. So love is the badge of our discipleship. Something you get stopped out on the highway, even by, let's say, a plainclothes officer, and uh, he pulls you over, and maybe he doesn't have his uniform on, but whenever he flips that badge out there and, and identifies himself, all of a sudden you realize he's a police officer. Love is the means whereby we identify ourselves as the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And anywhere true love exists, it'll be revealed. It can't be hid. It'll be revealed. If you don't believe that, when you get home, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because there Paul describes it. He doesn't define it, but he describes it. He tells us what love does, and it's a wonderful picture of love. And so if we wonder, am I lacking in, in regards to, to, to love? Just just read that chapter and it'll answer the question for you. Love is always revealed. It's realized. Eventually it's rewarded. That's look, that's the only thing that will that will get us going. Paul said the love of Christ, you know, constraineth us. I mean, that's, that's the thing that gets us going. That's the thing that keeps us going. That's the thing that gets us through the great difficulties of life. Love succeeds when everything else fails. Yeah, and that's why whether it's a marriage, whether it's a church relationship or whatever it is, love, love is able to keep going. And there's so many people that, you know, they'll get miffed about something and drop out of church and, uh, we look at the problem, you know, why why did so-and-so quit church? Well, it's usually because or maybe always because there's a lack of love somewhere. Love works through its problems. Tim and Cherie and Brother Kenneth and Shelley and Bev and I all right here in, in, in a bunch experiencing, uh, experiencing our anniversaries. Just ignore Go ahead and turn it off. I hear them out there, and mine's buzzing here. It's some sort of an alert, and so let's get that out of the way. But let me tell you, whether it's 24 years or 28, yours 28 or 24? Uh, oh, Shelly, what is yours? <laughs> no, I know. It's not there yet. 24. 24, and, and uh, with us, 60. Uh, let me tell you, if if... If love did not exist in those relationships, those marriages would not stand a chance. And it's the same thing when it comes to our relationship with the church. I love this church more than any church on the face of the earth. And But let me tell you, we're not perfect, and God help us to never think we are. We're not perfect. We want to be, but we're not 
perfect, you see. And love would have us to work through our problems. Instead of getting miffed and upset over something, you know, and say, well, I'm, I'm just going to go somewhere else. Well, for God's sake, don't, because you'll just stir up trouble there. Yeah. Stay away from them. Don't carry your troubles over there. Learn to work through your problems. And love enables us to do that. And that's why he's saying, Timothy, Timothy, remember now, Timothy is the young pastor at Ephesus. Uh, and, and so Paul is grooming him and helping him. He says, be thou an example of the believers in charity, in love, because if you're not, if you're not, the church is going to absolutely fall flat of its face. Now, notice the next thing. Number four, he says, in spirit, in spirit. That speaks about our attitude. The word spirit literally means breath or wind. It's a word that relates to energy. And it's talking about our inward emotional attitude, our disposition, our outlook, or maybe maybe we use the word temperament a lot of times to speak about that inward attitude of our heart. Have you ever thought about how important the atmosphere of a church is? Boy, that's one of the things I love about this church yeah, you know, people come and, and you can just tell they want to be there. They re- Oh, I know there might be an exception somewhere, but for the most part, people want to be there. They've got, they got a smile on their face. They're shaking hands. They're smiling and speaking kindly one to another. And boy, without the right atmosphere in a church, the, the services are absolutely doomed from the beginning, you see. And so the atmosphere is important, but the atmosphere of the church is made up, made up by the spirit, as it were, by the temperament of the members that make up the congregation. And regardless of how sound in doctrine we are, a bad spirit can ruin the service. I mean, the, boy, the, the sermon can be spot on. The singing can be flawless. Everything can be just right. But if there is a bad spirit, it can absolutely ruin everything. And by bad, I'm talking about having a bitter spirit, a sour spirit, maybe a critical spirit. It might be a proud spirit, a morbid spirit, a selfish spirit. That, that list could just go on and on and on, you see. So it's not just the words that we say. You know, a lot of times we can just grit our teeth and scotch our feet and we can refrain from saying things that we shouldn't and and seemingly we've got it all under control. I've seen people do that, you know. I wouldn't dare gossip or I wouldn't dare slander anyone, but they just sat there all puffed up like a toad and it looked like you've been baptized in vinegar and just sire spirit. And, and, and it's obvious to everybody and you go away wondering what? What in the world is wrong with so-and-so? So this this atmosphere of the church is dependent upon our attitude as Christian people. What Well, what should our attitude be? It ought to be exactly the attitude that Jesus had. I, this is one of those places I, I so wish I had about 20 minutes or 30 to talk about this. When we think about our Lord's attitude, we think about His Spirit, and we think about it in regards to, well, His love for God. Boy, that was so very obvious, right? And His love for others. Or how about His hatred for sin? 
he was angry and drove those money changers out of the temple. It was obvious. I mean, you, he didn't have to say a word for you to know that he was upset. It showed in his countenance, no doubt. It might be in his desire for holiness, his concern for the loss, his fullness of joy. In all of these different ways, our Lord's Spirit was revealed to others. You never had to wonder where he stood on an issue, not just by what he said, but by his very inner spirit bearing testimony to that fact. And so Paul says, Timothy, be thou an example of the believers in spirit. Now, number five, notice, he says, and be an example of the believers in faith. Well, it's kind of like I said about the subject of love. What more can I say? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We cannot function without faith. Faith enables us blank. Add to that what you will. Faith enables us to do whatever the Word of God requires. And without faith, we will no doubt fail every time. The problem is, is that there are too many unbelieving believers. Too many unbelieving believers. They talk about their faith in God, but when it comes time to exercise their faith, all of a sudden they balk. Like a balky mule, they just, boy, they won't budge, they won't go forward. It's so encouraging to a pastor whenever, whenever the time that members will, maybe in a business meeting or whatever, and there'll be some issue on the table, and somebody will, you know, literally challenge the church. And we, we've done that before. I could make note of several instances. And it pays to do what God Want you to do. I'll never forget many years ago, I was pastoring in Tennessee at the time, and boy, I tell you, our bank account was down to nearly nothing. But we had a guest preacher, a missionary there, and I felt so, so impressed that we need to support this man's ministry. And, and, and in the back of my mind, I was wondering how are we even going to pay our bills? How are we going to keep the lights on? But nevertheless, the church, the church decided that they would be for it, that we're going to start supporting this missionary, and we did. And by the end of the year, we had every bill paid, we had money in the bank, and we had added several more missionaries as a result of that. We have to function in faith or we're going to fail without any doubt. You see, God has called us to live on a level that requires a miracle, to live by a standard that is far too high for us. He has called us. And by the way, not only has God demanded these things from us, God has designed the ministry so as to require them from us also. Think about it. Go ye into all of the world. And boys, the Lord laid that out for his followers. He told, he told them, I mean, right up front. He said, the world has hated me and it's going to hate you. You're going to be despised. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be persecuted. He told them that. And then he turns around and says, I want you to go out there in all of the world and preach the gospel. That's back in the day whenever they don't have the, you know, they don't have printing presses. 
They didn't have a computer back then. They didn't have jet airplanes to fly them over to some other country. They had to get there any way they could. God not only designed His work back in those days to require the impossible, I really believe that if, if, if we do what God wants us to do, that there are going to be times that we'll be faced with the impossible in our life. And that's where faith comes in. Not only in regards to our church situation, but again, as I mentioned, marriage just while ago. Without faith, a marriage is doomed. There's, there's got to be that faith in God that, yes, it's bad now, but we serve a God that's going to get us through it. And that's the attitude that we need to have as a church whenever Satan would try to convince us, you know, just sit back and take it easy. You're not able to do any more than what you're doing. We need to accept that challenge by faith and trust God to do things that we never imagined and things that others never thought possible for us. So it's no small matter if we fail to be an example when it comes to this matter of faith. Now, there's one more thing on the list that I want you to notice. He says, be thou an example of the believers in purity, in purity. Boy, we don't hear very much about that today. There is a strange silence when it comes to the matter of holiness and hatred of sin. You almost never hear sermons about that in this day and age. It's too controversial. Preachers don't want to get off on the subject of sin because they're afraid it'll upset the apple cart. They don't want to preach on holiness because of the fact that's not a popular subject. But every one of us needs to realize our responsibility to be an example of the believers in the matter of purity. We, we ought to ask ourselves this very night, am I pursuing purity in my life? Job did. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I'll not think upon a maiden. In other words, I'll not let my eyes fall upon a maiden. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give in to my lust. I'm going to avoid everything I can to live a life of purity. That ought to be every Christian's goal. It ought to be our constant aim because we face danger and temptation from every direction. And if we're not prepared, then we're going to fail. Be an example of the believers in purity. I don't know about you, but the question comes to my mind, how in the world can I prevail in this matter? How can I succeed to live a life of purity? Well, the answer comes from the fact that purity of life comes from purity of heart. Purity of heart. It's the inward man. When David, back in Psalms 51, many of you are familiar with this. David had already sinned. Uh, and he says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Renew a right spirit within me. The problem, the problem David had, now a lot of times we look at this, and this is David's confession of the sin that he had already committed. But this issue here of having a clean heart and a right spirit, 
That was the reason for his fall, not the result of his sin. We usually look at that as, oh, well, that was the result of his sin. Now he's got a dirty heart, you know, and a bad spirit. But he wouldn't have got in that condition had he had a pure heart to start with. That is the reason he got in that situation. Thankfully, David realized that if I'm going to deal with this issue, I've got to get in here. It's not just a matter of me intellectually making up my mind that I'm a child of God and that I ought to live right, but I've got to have a clean heart. I've got to have a right spirit. As I was thinking about the message, I thought back over the years and realized that I owe a lot to a lot of people for a lot of things. I'm talking about especially in my Christian life. I owe a lot to a lot of people for a lot of things. And I think back to that first year that I became a Christian. And I think about the people that that was was in our life back at that time. And I've, I've often tried to describe it by saying that they wouldn't let you backslide if you wanted to. And that's kind of the approach they took. How, you know, don't you even think about missing church, dropping out of church, slowing down. I mean, they were always, always there encouraging and challenging you in, 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 in every way possible. And how I thank God for that. Uh, how I thank God for the example that my pastor set. He sure wasn't perfect. I'm not perfect. But he set a godly example for me. And it's, look, it's not just then, but everywhere I've been, in every church that, that, that I've been a part of, there have been people in that church that set an example, people that challenged me. And, and so I, I, I think it's fair to say near the top of the list of things I'm indebted for are those that have been a godly example and the effect that it's had on me i could i could call names right now and and speak about different people here being an example in different ways and how inspirational that is to me how how encouraging that is to me now one last thought i hope that you'll be that to somebody else because the world is watching the world, and they need your example. But remember this, if we fail at one of these, we mentioned six things, but to fail at one of these could be to ruin the effect of success at all of the others. Are you with me? Because, for example, take love. We fail there. We, we might seemingly succeed in all of those other areas. But we have really failed altogether. The same thing's true of faith. It's true of every one of those things. If we fail at any one of them, some folks got the idea, well, boy, I've got a lot of faith and I love people and I watch my vocabulary and I do this and I do that. But when it comes down to, you know, something else on the list, they would have to admit, boy, that's my area of failure. And the problem is, they pat themselves on the back and congratulate themselves. Well, that's not too bad, just one one failure out of six things. No, it's horrible. It's terrible because that one thing can shipwreck your life. I, I hope that 
every one of us to leave here tonight with the prayer on our lips, Dear God, help me to understand that I'm the only Bible some people will ever read. And the problem is, so many times we give the wrong impression of Christ. And they're going, look, they're going to judge Christ by what they see in us. They really are. There'll be people making judgments about Christ by what they see in you. And we can't do anything better than to give them an example that is a reflection of who Christ is and what He does. And if we do these things here, set an example before others, we'll be, what's that word? Blameless. Blameless. I wish I could preach for an hour right now on that. Just being blameless. Being blameless. That involves so many different things. Things. Remember when the church at Corinth having all of, all of the bickering going on, all of those problems? A lot of it had to do with the dietary laws and things of that nature. And I love what Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians. He said, uh, you're not naturally not to put a stumbling block before others, but he said, if eating meat makes my brother to offend, I'll eat no meat while the world standeth. That's always impressed me because I love meat and potatoes, you know. I, that, I mean, that'd be a real challenge to me. But Paul is simply saying the effect of my behavior on others is more important than me doing the things that I enjoy doing. And if it means giving that up, I'm willing to give it up. And so the standard rule is if in doubt, don't. If, if in doubt, don't. There have been so many people say, oh, Brother Stone, what, do you think it would be all right to do this or that? Well, you know, pray about it and let God guide you. And if you've if you got any doubts about it, don't. Just don't do it. That's the only safe ground. That, and when God tells us to be blameless, he, he, that's not the same as being sinless. That's not what he's saying. To be blameless means this, and I, I promise I'll quit. To be blameless means to live in such a way that others can, blame, can, can bring no indictable charge against you. You know, though they can accuse you of whatever all they want, but they can't bring something to indict you as guilty of those charges. That's what it means to be blameless. And it's through that blameless lifestyle that we become an example of the believers. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you tonight for those men and women that have been uh, godly examples and the encouragement that they brought and the challenge that, that they've given to my life personally and the effect that people like that have on a church. Lord, we realize that the church will rise no higher than, than the conduct, the behavior of, of its members. And so help us, Lord, to not be the kind of member that would cripple the church, but help us to be the kind that would be motivators in the church and mainly by setting a good example for others to follow. Forgive us of the times and the many ways that we have failed you and help us to accept the challenge here tonight to leave here determined with your help to be a believable believer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.